guys, what's up? James here, and I just wanted to quickly remind you that each episode of The Crunchy Take is available on Spotify, YouTube, Radio Public, and Google Podcasts. So if you'd like to hear these episodes as soon as they air, please, please consider following or subscribing on the platform of your choice. I can also be found by typing in James Kittipole on Facebook or James.Kittipole for Instagram. If you'd like to recommend topics for me or my guests to cover, the best way to do so would be to either send an email to crunchymedicine at gmail.com or send us a voice message at anchor.fm slash james-kittipole slash message. That's anchor.fm slash james-kittipole. That's K-I-T-T-I-P-O-L slash message. Thanks for stopping by and enjoy the podcast. And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to another round of the Crunchy Take. And we're in uh, we're in for a special episode today on a pretty interesting topic, at least for me. Uh, but without further ado, Joseph Mose, how's it going, my brother? Hey, doing well. It's good to be here, Joseph. Um, can you bring whoever is listening up to speed? Uh, who are you, and where where do you come from? And uh, what do you currently do? What uh, mm-hmm. What is your current occupation? Yeah, no problem. So I'm a TCK or third culture kid. I was born in the U.S., but grew up in Ukraine uh, part of the time in the city of Kiev and the rest of the time down south in Odessa. Um, I've been back in the States for, well, let's see, since 2014. So that's six years now. Uh, right now, I teach high school social studies uh, and I teach a small private Christian school called Horizon Christian School. I do world history, U.S. history, government, econ. I got to teach a Russian history class this last semester, which was pretty fun. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of what I do right now. Did you, um, see, so yeah, I mean, for context, just to not make it super awkward, I mean, we, we went to college together. Uh, Joseph mm-hmm. came in when I was a sophomore, I mean, 2014. Yep, that's so right. About the year. Had you been to the States before? I had been. I had been. We had visited. We'd come back a couple of times. My family were missionaries, so missionaries, you do okay. home service and go back and forth every now and again. Can you kind of explain what that? Well, see, the trigger question for any TCK or M MK student is, "Where are you from?" Mm-hmm. Is because it's like, and for me, it's almost the same thing. Is because as an international student, and especially if you have dual citizenship like you do, it's almost like, uh, "Where do I truly belong?" You know? Can mm-hmm. you kind of take us into the? mindset of a missionary kid like what's it like to sort of juggle these two really strong identities i mean it 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 definitely is uh confusing at times or or frustrating Mm -hmm. um never really feeling like you have a a concrete home or a a culture that you fully identify with Mm -hmm. Uh, but at the same time there's a lot of benefits because you can draw on aspects of both of the cultures that you grew up with or that you're familiar with and Mm -hmm. and kind of pick and choose uh, you get a little bit of that that uh objectivity of an outsider maybe but you get a little bit more of that insider perspective than you would have one way or another yeah uh it's a it's a complicated experience there's a lot that you could talk about but um i mean that's kind of a surface level i guess yeah no it's good yeah. any 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 kind mm-hmm. of i mean for a lot of for a lot of people this is an area of um this is an area that they just don't know about uh you know mm-hmm. a lot of people who grew up who we went to college with, there was a surprising number of people that never even left the country, that have mm-hmm. either never left the country, never even left their state, never left their uh, region, yeah. I suppose, you know, but it is the world we live in, you know, it's not, it's not a bad thing at all, it's just circumstantial, it's the way people um, were brought up. Uh, nah, did you, um, 
So coming to college, mm-hmm. was it your kind of your first time being in the States for a long period of time? Yeah, that was the first time when I came to college, the first time I had been in the States uh, for, I mean, more than one year since I was seven. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think that your prior knowledge of America prior to studying and may- maybe setting your career down here was different than uh, what it is now? Or is it has it pretty much remained the same? I mean, I would definitely say that I've learned a lot and sort of learned to adjust to mm-hmm. American culture um, and kind of how to function and how people think around here. Uh, I, I think definitely after being here for six years, you mm-hmm. definitely do learn a little bit more about how to uh, what what is going on yeah. um, in the United States. There's a lot that I didn't know coming in that that um i sort of became more aware of as as time went on here the reason i wanted to ask you to come on i mean mean, dude i feel like this has been (laughs) it's been like a year long year and a half process to try to you know because i i think about a year ago i broached the topic hey man and you know if i were to ever start a podcast would you be ever interested would you ever be interested in being on is you kind of gave me this hey well We'll see, you know, situational wise and whatnot. And it's just crazy that a year and a half later, um, everything that's been going on, here we are, you know, mm-hmm. and the main, quite possibly the main reason, I mean, this, this series just provided kind of the perfect backdrop to have not only someone of your background come on, but of your expertise. I, I wouldn't consider myself like a bona fide expert or anything like that, but I've always, like as far back as I can think or remember, I've always been kind of an obsessive person. If, if something was interesting to me, I would be like all about that. What like, were some you know, of the first things you were obsessed about? First things, very first thing that I can remember was trains. Like my parents would take me to the train station. I just oh, wanted to same. watch those trains come and go. Did After you ever collect that, them? I did. I did. And I did that. I had a lot of these little, you know, Thomas the Train Engine toys and stuff. Um, then pretty quickly, I moved on to dinosaurs, which was a pretty all-encompassing one. Dinosaurs are what uh, motivated me to learn to read so I could read the dinosaur books on my own. How okay. early did you learn about yeah. the word paleontology? Pretty early. In kindergarten. Um, somehow yeah. it got ingrained into my head in kindergarten. Because mm-hmm. my yeah. teacher was like, this is how you spell it. This is what they do. And we're going to dig up, you know, they would, they would bring in... When I was in kindergarten, they, uh, you know, I went to an international school that had an American curriculum. Mm-hmm. The teacher brought in this like kind of kit. Mm-hmm. Where you, I don't know if it's like a faux kind of clay slash sediment and you knack at it with like a small little mini hammer and there'd be bones underneath mm-hmm. and you brush it away with a brush or whatnot. Do you ever collect those, uh, those, I don't even know what you call them. Fossil toys where you have to do the work yourself and like um, I've definitely definitely had a few of those things or like like the wooden skeleton model that you kind of put together. Mm-hmm. Um, I would go to the library with my grandmother and, and we and Xerox pages of, of dinosaur books to take back with me <laughs> and stuff like that. But um, I mean, not too long after that um, is essentially the same sort of thing. I started to become more interested in mm-hmm. sort of history, stories of the past, ancient civilizations. And uh, that one has really stuck with me. I mean, honestly, since I was, you know, seven or eight. Ancient civilizations. Um, I mean, initially, like yeah, things with swords and shields and, you know, ancient Greeks. Um, mm-hmm. I had a lot of um, really cool sort of children's history books that were very engaging um, that kind of pulled me into it. So there was a... Um, 
just a lot of interest early on, and, and that's been fairly consistent. Yeah, any movies come in the way of that that, that came and kind of aided you, or books, or picture books, comics? I mean, like so the, there was a book called The Children's History of the World, which was uh, one of my first. I read through that thing a couple of times. Um, uh, one was um, playing the game Age of Empires, actually. Uh, or Age of Empires 2, to be specific. Mm-hmm. Um, there was... Let's see, what else? Um, I mean, there there was a large assortment of, of different books and things that kind of pulled me in that direction, I think. Or, mm-hmm. or at least helped me feed that interest. Video games? Well, let's see. Besides Age of Empires, that was really my main one, like, history game that I played throughout mm-hmm. most of my uh, childhood. Later on, when I was older, I also got into the Total War series of games, uh, which are kind of like the same idea just yeah. better graphics and stuff well besides what we're about to talk about today and we're going to get your opinion on that in just a second here can you what are some of your favorites as far as for people wanting to know maybe a little more about recent history what are what are some of your favorite movies that you'd recommend just right off the bat favorite movies yeah uh, let's see well my my all-time favorite movie uh, is a movie called 12. Um, it's a Russian-made movie by a director named Nikita Mikhalkov. Mm. It's um, sort of a modern Russian take on the play 12 Angry Men. Um, it's a brilliant it, movie. It, have you seen it? Did, did I show You were the one that yeah. showed it to yeah, us. Yeah, you sat so. us down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, we were asked, we were debating. You know, this was a typical Friday night or whatnot. We went to Denny's. We went to Sean Denny's house. Mm-hmm. Was, uh, shout out to Sean to Sean Denny. But yeah, you sat us down. Was, is their take on 12 Angry Men? Yeah. So right. it kind of takes, I mean, the play is set in the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, it takes that similar idea of, you know, uh, um, uh, a young boy or young man accused of murder, mm-hmm. uh, a seemingly obvious case. Most of the jurors kind of go in with their mindset and one juror is not convinced and the argument sort of goes on. It takes that that basic storyline and transplants it into uh, sort of Russia of the 2000s. Um, and it just it's very, very interesting how that same story changes in a Russian context. And mm-hmm. it, it, it takes... I mean, the original play also deals with, you know, issues of discrimination in the court system, you know, in the United States at the time. Uh, It takes those and and transplants it to Russia. So, for instance, in the the Russian context, the boy is Chechenian and it gets into some of the the issues surrounding the Chechen uh, war uh, and um, and also sort of the legacy of the Soviet Union and how people are dealing with it and sort of through the jurors. It gives kind of kind of a cross section of of sort of maybe archetypes or maybe stereotypes of like different people, different classes in in modern day Russia. Um, it, it's also just a very beautiful movie, very interesting cinematography. I never thought that a uh, you know sort of rundown school gym. Oh would no, be so it provides. So for those that don't know, what we're referring to is a scene. Well, the whole movie, whole. I'd, I'd like to say that the key events of the movie take place in a tiny gym that these people hold their jurors meeting in. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, it would otherwise the American version or the original version is like in a small little office or whatnot. Mm-hmm. But they use this gym to like represent all different facets of their lives, the people mm-hmm. around the de- uh, around the tables or whatnot. And they, you know, obviously when people argue with each other, they go, they pace back and forth. Mm-hmm. They use the gym as like illustrations, various illustrations of their lives. It's 12. And who's the director? 
Nikita Michalkov. What else has he directed? Uh, he's actually directed a lot of stuff. Um, some other interesting ones is a, a movie called The Barber of Siberia, um, which is sort of a, a uh, almost an allegorical story about the relationship between Russia and the West. Uh, the story kind of revolves around mm-hmm. uh, this American woman who shows up in Russia right around the turn of the, the 20th century. Uh, sort of like the late era of uh, the Romanov czars, and mm-hmm. she meets a, a Russian officer cadet, and you know things happen and ensue. And I mean, there's a this lot. This guy's a very interesting character developer, man. Just mm-hmm. his characters in his movies seem to seem to really carry a, a certain type of energy. What year did Twelve come out? Just for our viewers, what year did it come out? I actually, I'm not. I'm not certain exactly when it came. Maybe yeah. 2000. I'd say I, it looks like mid 2000s. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a, like in that era. In yeah, the, the 2000s for mm-hmm. sure. Well, with that kind of introduction into uh, Russian, well, not even Russian cinema, because what we're about to discuss is not Russian cinema. Mm-hmm. What we are here to discuss today is uh, HBO's uh, series titled Chernobyl, written by Craig Mazin. Uh, same writer of the hang um of the hangover movies believe it or not this guy's been all over the place as far as writing wise and he recently i don't know if you know about the last of us video games mm-hmm. but supposedly he's been tagged as a writer for um a series that hbo is going to produce with uh naughty dog oh really and he's been in talks as the writer so yeah whatever he did in chernobyl it's working you know because to go from mm-hmm. such a tonal shift you know hangover mm-hmm. movies really party heavy it's a really subject serious subject matter yeah i right? mean at least he's not you know typecast or sort of no stuck not in at the... all it's hard and even the soundtrack um the sound the lady who did the soundtrack hildor uh whose last name i'm not going to try to replicate it's a very long <laughs> mm-hmm. nordic uh, name she's received a lot of critical acclaim as well okay but chernobyl is hbo's kind of take on i'd like to say the mentality of what took place during that time period, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's a five-part miniseries. Yeah. Right, five parts. Kind of like it, it, HBO's done historic miniseries before. You know, mm-hmm. done, they did the Pacific yeah, a while yeah. back. They, mm-hmm. did, they, did they do um, Brothers? I Band think of Brothers? so, but I'm not, I'm not confident on that one. Yeah. But this was the first one to really um, not include gore to that extent there was no shooting there was no violence it was more so oh there was gore mm-hmm. to uh you know we'll get to that in a little bit but this was the first series to that sort of caught wind last year uh this was for context this was right after game of thrones had just aired mm-hmm. and if you know pop culture news at all game of thrones at least according to the fans didn't do that well yeah um, yeah but seemingly out of nowhere, this miniseries about a certain time in history popped up out of nowhere and it started winning a whole bunch of awards. Um, so how did you first come to watch it? Well, I mean, I had stumbled across um, trailers for it. I mean, in the spring before it came out fairly mm-hmm. early on. And it really caught my interest because uh, especially in Western media, it's not really all that often that you see a lot about Ukraine and, and especially not a lot of stories or media or movies that like specifically tackle, you know, Ukrainian. And I mean, Chernobyl's not just Ukrainian, also Belarusian and Russian, Minsk, but yeah. um, but it's it's in Ukraine. Um, 
not a lot of media that actually tackles Ukrainian stories. You know, there's there, there's like a Jack Ryan movie where they go to Ukraine for part of it, and there's some stereotypical Ukrainians who show up. So I, I was really excited actually when I saw the trailers. Um, I because uh, I I mean to, it was cool to see uh, that they were going to tell that story, and yeah. it would be more more widely known in the West. Um, I was a little, little concerned that it would be, you know, historically inaccurate or, or sort of there would be problems in its portrayal. As always, you um, know, when I saw the trailer, it was like you always have that gnawing suspicion that Hollywood or certain producers, certain media outlets are going to hype up certain events, mm-hmm. which this is why I wanted to bring you on, because Chernobyl feels different. They take liberties. In, you know, and in different facets and different areas. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, you you see the trailers and they nine times out of ten, it doesn't give you an image of it doesn't give you a realistic picture of what's about to happen Mm -hmm. because you can't spoil history. That is true. You know, you can't people, you know, this might date the pot a little bit, but recently ESPN aired a 10 part series of their own titled The Last Dance. Mm -hmm. And it has to do with Michael Jordan. And it's funny that at the end of each episode they leave a cliffhanger as if you don't know what happens next you mm-hmm. know um well actually that's that's something interesting about chernobyl because you're right to some extent mm-hmm. you know there's no spoiling it uh and i think that the people the you know the directors and writers who made it uh tackled that issue in a really interesting way um with the i mean if you've seen it you know the explosion happens at the very beginning, very beginning, and is and is really hardly given even any attention. Mm-hmm. It, it the it rushes to get over with the thing that most people know, mm-hmm. which is Chernobyl <clears throat> exploded. Yeah, right. But that's the thing is for most people that was the full extent of their knowledge. Right. Most, mo- I mean, in Ukraine, obviously, there's a lot more knowledge about what happened in Russia. There is, and in Belarus, there is. Uh, or Belarus, I guess, is the English way of saying that. I don't know what it is actually. No, Belarus. Anyways, um, uh, there's in the West, you know, people don't know a lot about the details of, you know, what came after. Like, what who, what were the specifics? Why did it explode? Mm-hmm. And what were the consequences? And who were, like, the little people? So I think that in a really interesting way, um, and a really engaging way, the Chernobyl Chernobyl gets around that the problem of you can't spoil history because instead of pinning all their attention to, mm-hmm. you know, is Chernobyl going to explode? In which case, we'd all be like, yes, we all know that it exploded, right? It pins its tension onto the, the human emotional stories of the people who are caught up in the mess afterwards. Yeah. It... Well, the reason I sort of bring up the aspect of can't spoiling it, I'm always kind of leery of series and media depictions of historical events, especially if they're recent. Mm -hmm. I'm always, which is why when I first heard about it, I was kind of hesitant to watch it because I'm always, you always have to be aware that the people who were affected then are still, some of them are still alive. Mm -hmm. There's a good chunk of them that are still, still suffering from the events of Chernobyl, you know? Which now, this is definitely going to date the podcast, but I really wanted to talk to you about it because in the set, uh, in the face of what we're going through now, Mm -hmm. you know, you can kind of not to compare directly compare experiences, but Chernobyl in some sense is a story, is a series of events depicting these people who had to go through something unfathomably difficult. 
mm-hmm. you know, yeah. unquestionably difficult sacrifices were made on many different ends uh, so that people would barely know what it is today. Mm-hmm. You know, the surface knowledge of what I came in with <clears throat> was the fact that, yes, it exploded. People died. And it's about ARS. It's about acute radi- radiation syndrome or whatnot. It's just mm-hmm. like that's the surface knowledge of what people know. Um, unless you know world history like yourself. Or if you paid attention in history class and you know remotely anything about the KGB or how they operated or, you know, how different cultures operate in opposed to your own. Like even Mm -hmm. for me, someone who is not from the United States, you know, you study world history. It's like there's this whole different world that you don't understand, Mm -hmm. you know. So I guess the proper way to go about it would be maybe really quickly skim through what happens from episode one to episode five. So episode one is all about, you know, Legasov, Valery Legasov. Mm-hmm. I'd say, would you say he's like the main character? He's definitely one of the main ones. I, one of the interesting things about this, and I mean, nothing I'm saying is new. You can listen to the podcast the creators that exactly, themselves yeah, made and they, they'll absolutely. lay this out too. But uh, one of the interesting things about how the show is organized is that each episode covers a slightly longer period of time. Right. So like the first episode is focused on just the, the minutes and hours immediately after the explosion. Correct. Uh, the next episode uh, is, you know, the, the first couple of days and then we get into, you know, weeks and then months mm-hmm. after the event. Um, I don't remember the exact time scale that goes on there, but basically the first episode is focused on the, the immediate immediate aftermath. Right. And you see the, um, firefighters, um, going out to, 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 to fight it initially. You, you see how little people knew about radiation at the time and how many, Mm -hmm. how so many people were uh, exposed, um, sort of out of ignorance or or, or neglect to yeah. properly inform people about the the dangers, and then of course the the next several episodes pick up with the efforts to actually contain it. So Legasov shows up, uh, Valery Legasov, uh, at the end of the first episode, and then um, you see over the next couple of episodes how he and um, the um, Soviet commissioner, Buddy Sherbina, begin to actually tackle the problem. Mm-hmm. And sort of step by step, you see them trying to put the fire out, and then they have to deal with, you know, the danger of the meltdown going down uh, in deeper into the groundwaters uh, or into a, a reservoir of water causing an even larger explosion. Can you kind of highlight that for a second? I feel mm-hmm. like uh, for people that did watch the show or for people that didn't watch the show, so the Chernobyl power plant was this. Uh, it was right basically on top of this water pipe that was leading into the Black Sea. Is that what well, is it, uh, is No, that what so saying? it was um, so it's it's a nuclear power plant. So mm-hmm. and and this is more the science side of it. But like an, sure. an integral part of the way that it worked was having an ample supply of water uh, that would, could be heated, turned into steam. Mm-hmm. And then that is what turned the turbines to generate electricity. Uh, so there, there was a lot of water already there, mm-hmm. uh, and especially since uh, after the explosion, they left the water going. A lot of it had piled up in there, and also, um, so it's it's not that there was a pipe that led to the Black Sea. It's that it, it's at, it's in the northern part of Ukraine, right? Um, uh, and the Ukraine has a big river called the Dnieper River that sort of flows down it, mm-hmm. uh, and um, the problem was the or one of the problems was that the reactor, uh, this radioactive material, 
um, that's super, you know, super heated, the graphite and stuff like that. Um, it could melt through the floor, essentially, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, through the foundations of the building and then get down into the actual earth itself. And, you know, if it gets deep enough, then it can start seeping into the groundwater. So the the, the water that is below the ground that, you know, seeps into all of the streams and lakes and rivers, like in the just whole contaminate region. your whole water yeah, that, supply. That could, and that's just the underground water supply. That's not taking into account the... Um, the fallout rain yeah, that would yeah. have seeped mm-hmm. up into the air or whatnot, and then the radioactive particles that would have been carried by wind yeah, across absolutely. that whole continent. It's mm-hmm. just, yeah, what you're saying is is so true. It's just um, they they show you everything at the very beginning. They mm-hmm. show you like of the fact that he committed suicide mm-hmm. in what three, five years? Yeah, I think it's two years after the event. Two years, like to like the that. day mm-hmm. that uh, the explosion happened, right? So we have. Legasov, we have mm-hmm. Sherbina, but we also have, um, I think I'll save that for later, uh, in, in a little bit. We have uh, the three main, I, I, I don't want to say villains, because the movie, this, I feel like there's this tendency to, I mean, in, sto- in storytelling to say, oh, this is the protagonist, this is the antagonist. But these were at the, end, at the end of the day, these were people trying to do their jobs. You know, um, I was just trying to read into Brikhanov. Mm-hmm. Or not, he was the, I think he was the lead or senior engineer mm-hmm. at the Chernobyl power plant. Yeah. He was, he got there at age 34. Yeah. At, and these were men that were very, very proud of their work. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. lack of knowledge in a ton of areas provide, like, given. These were men that, you know, when they got to uh, the power, when they got to the site, it was, there was like nothing there. And they they'd spent just a huge chunk of time building this thing. So by all accounts, like, do you think that Chernobyl was kind of the model place to be at the time? You know, as far as nuclear energy and these like kind of mini city mini cities that that ex, that existed in Russia. I mean, in the Soviet Union at the time, uh, the Chernobyl power plant was something that they were very that, that the Soviet right. um, the Communist Party as a whole was very very proud of. Um, Did they have reason to be, in your opinion? Oh, well, they they saw it as uh, just an example of mm-hmm. you know Soviet technological advancement, um, and you know in a lot of ways it was um, the the town that that was nearby where most of the workers lived, Pripyat, mm-hmm. um, was sort of like the model Soviet utopia. It was it was a really nice place to live, especially compared to a lot of the Soviet Union. They mm-hmm. had uh, a beautiful public pool. Um, you know, beautifully designed uh, streets and 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 really a lot of attention went into that specific area. Uh, people who lived there lived quite a lot better in a lot of ways than mo- your average Soviet citizen. Why was that? Was that because there was more funding given to them or from the P- Communist Party? Like, did they kind of fulfill that picture perfect image that the Communist Party had wanted for them at the time. Yeah, I mean it was it was really all part of the image. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean that was cuz that was that that goal of, you know, creating the workers utopia was kind of always integral to mm-hmm. the Soviet Union ever since the the Russian Revolution in 1917 that was a key part of it and Pripyat was meant to be sort of like a um a signpost, you know, saying, "Look, we can achieve this. We've already done it here." Mm-hmm. Uh, in this place and that is a theme throughout the show you know that is a theme that they establish i think early on just the whole mentality surrounding uh workers labor just like 
different how labor affects different parties you know different parties should only be worried about their labor and not interfere with the interests of the state like you see that kgb um uh, operative in that in the bunker when they're mm-hmm. discussing what happened right so kind of circling back and the reason uh you have to get at that first is because the three uh people that the show kind of pegs as antagonists are people are you know anatoly diatlov mm-hmm. uh fomin yeah and then uh rakanov yeah you know and anna uh diatlov is like the if we're talking legasov's on the one side uh diatlov's probably on the other side so mm-hmm. yeah Initially, what did you think of his portrayal and the fact that hey, he's still alive today? You know, well, he uh, lived much longer than a lot of people anticipated. You know? Yeah, um, I, that's. An, I mean, obviously, he's portrayed as sort of grossly negligent, and, right? And um, in a lot of ways, I mean, and and the the show does accurately portray the fact that the disaster at Chernobyl was the result of. Uh, a series of of bad decisions related to people either cutting corners or um, bad documentation, bad documentation, or mm-hmm. um, just sort of systematic uh, dishonesty, or just this, um, sort of problems that eventually led to the disaster. Mm-hmm. Um, I've read a couple of criticisms of of Dyatlov's uh, presentation that he wasn't sort of that blatantly antagonistic. Right. Uh, and and because the of, actor does a really really good job. I mean, it, it definitely he's, <laughs> in, in hamming that up, which is why yeah. again I I'm always I think we're always kind of cautious about oh that's an exact representation of what's going on. You know, as good as the show is, I feel like it does take liberties in many areas. Do you think it took liberties there with him? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's potentially. Um, I think it's easy to want to portray uh, the person who who may have been the most immediately responsible as sort of like this mm-hmm. uh sort of like angry unlikable bad person um i i need to do more research and see what more firsthand people think to like say for sure whether that was completely wrong or not yeah uh definitely Dyatlov gets I think not a particularly nuanced portrayal compared to some of the other people in the show. Yeah, it's not that that I think is my key kind of uh thing stopping me from saying, oh, that's a direct representation. Because obviously with any history uh take on history, you can't say that's an absolute. You know, you can't you can't look at any interpretation and say that's like a one hundred percent. But I feel like of all the aspects of the show, I feel like Diatlov was probably where they took the most liberties as far as I mean, there's another character, obviously, by the name of Homyuk. Mm-hmm. You know, she's fictional. Yeah. Meant to represent the hundreds or or a good number of scientists mm-hmm. that sacrificed and, ge- and pretty much almost gave their lives in helping out with this disaster. You mm-hmm. know, different scientists here and there that pointed out flaws. Um, yeah. What did you think of... Uh, Kind of run. We're sort of running through the characters at first before we mm-hmm. go into the key events. But um, Homiuk, yeah, do you think that was a good decision as far as? I can understand why they did it. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, I think it makes sense that you want to have some sort of a point character. Yeah, uh, and it's very hard to sort of portray in a miniseries mm-hmm. whole institutions, hundreds of people working hard around the clock. Um, it definitely is interesting to me that they didn't. In, I mean, with so much focus on Hamuk as sort of like the the science 
person, the science mm-hmm. expert that's helping them. Uh, it it does make me wonder what whether they could have you know maybe included at least references or shown that there were so many other more, people actively involved. Yeah. Um, it also had the effect of creating a character who is like this amazing correct science whiz person with yeah. you know the brains of hundreds of scientists because that's literally what she is. Yeah, um, she was everywhere. She yeah. was like, oh, she detected this in. Uh, where where was her Belarus or whatnot? Mm-hmm. They, her supposed position was something at the Institute of Belarusian yeah. and whatnot, and then she detects the isotopes in the air off of a I don't know what, what do you call the machine? I, I'm I'm blanking right now. Uh, the yeah. RBMK reactor? No, the, the uh, detector. Oh, um, the scimitar. Yeah, the whatnot. Scimitar. There are the scimitars mm-hmm. in the labs. Caught it as soon as the guy opened the window, and then she tested that the particles from the dust in the window or not. It's just yeah, in in some ways, you kind of wish that they'd have found maybe more ways to include, or better ways to include, to kind of hint at the fact that you know these were more people, obviously mm-hmm. that came. The evidence was kind of overwhelming because the show does point out that um, you know other countries had detected radioactive particles mm-hmm. or isotopes in the air. The Americans had taken. Uh, satellite photos was that well, was that really accurate or yeah so what happened i mean what happened was uh, when the accident happened the soviet union very quickly tried to suppress any news mm-hmm. of it happening mm-hmm. um, which was their and, first and, mistake and keep it keep it hidden and sort of under wraps um but the wind was sort of blowing to the north and so the huge right. radioactive cloud went north uh over belarus and into uh eventually scandinavia mm-hmm. uh and up there where they had um uh, nuclear facilities they started to detect crazy amounts of radiation in the air it wasn't like a um, nominal amount it was like big yeah yeah a big change and yeah. so at first they checked all of their own stuff mm-hmm. uh because they thought they might have a leak and then eventually they figured out that it was being blown out of the soviet union and that got everyone's attention uh, because there's a lot of radiation coming out of the Soviets. So what happened? And that is when uh, mm-hmm. other nations started to get involved and ask questions and eventually, you know, zoom in and take do some of their own investigation. Right. Uh, so like was, the Germans or so there was a certain nation that wasn't letting kids play outside. Yeah, I think and that was kind of juxtaposed with the shot of kids playing outside in Pripyat. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean that's the thing is in Pripyat and in Kyiv as well. Like the the day after the explosion there was set to be a, a big parade in Kyiv. Oh no. Uh, way. Yeah, a, a huge what was the celebration. About? It was like a like a May Day uh celebration kind of a thing. Um so uh but yeah, the there was some question of whether mm-hmm. it should be stopped and they decided to go on with it. So you had tons of people outside and Kyiv is not far from Pripyat. It's only no. a, a bit south. Um was and, Kyiv was part of Kyiv uh evacuated or was it just like No. Was it no. just Pripyat? And- yeah, just just Pripyat and and the the towns and villages in what's called the exclusion zone. Mm-hmm. Um, which is sort of around Chernobyl, which is still still empty today. You, right, people are. I mean, unless you go on YouTube there. and look on look at videos of these people in bandanas just going around town and. Yeah, well, I mean, people do go there as tours. Um, now. Yeah, there's tours and things like that. You, I've never done it. Uh, You've I, never been there? No, I I kind of would like to maybe at some point. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, it is a thing you can go uh, to uh, Pripyat. 
Um, from people who've been there, I've heard uh, there's very specific rules about where you can go and where you can't go. Uh, there are some spots where you're walking along the road and they'll, you know, have their disseminator. They'll put on one side at crackles, put on the other side at crackles. And they're like, you know, walk on this path and you're fine, but step off and you're going to die kind of a thing. The way you're um, making it sound is like you're, you're, you're suggesting that a lot of it is, um, is that fairly accurate to how radiation is over time? Like, is it active in certain areas or are there certain surfaces that it clings to a little more i mean i'm no scientist but i'm definitely there are areas where there's more radioactive material right. or the, the the dirt can carry it uh, or things like that or certain areas were cleared out and others weren't mm -hmm. uh, so there are places you can go and places you can't you can get so you can get close enough to see the uh see the station uh, but the other thing is you have to realize is so the chernobyl power uh plant had four reactors and the fourth one exploded reactor number four the other three kept working right um, and it and, remained in operation for some time and, oh it remained in, in operation well into uh you know modern ukraine existing right. today uh because they couldn't afford to not have that electricity so how wait before shoot there are so many things i want to get but before we before we dive into how did they keep that in operation despite the gnawing radiation that was coming out of the that was coming out of chernobyl well i mean long term they, they eventually that, contained the yeah. radiation with sort of what they called the, the sarcophagus or this enormous metal and concrete construction that covered over the it was finished in what year 2017 i think well they redid it in 2017 because right, okay. the old one was crumbling mm -hmm. um but the first one was built i don't know exactly when it was completed but um, I mean, within a couple of years after the after the disaster, you have to imagine how much goes into building stuff like that. Just like a lot. The I mean, amount they, of manpower and the amount of, I mean, unfortunately, deaths that occur just because people working and being exposed to. Well, with the, with the new one, what they did was they actually constructed it f away from it, and and it was and moved it moved in like it a over. gate. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Which is wild to think because it's just it. I mean. It has to be not that far from where the plant is. So for them to push it in, it's just, okay, from here, not as much radiation. Whereas to here, it's like the core, mm -hmm. you know, the exposed core. So, man, so many different places we can go. I'm, I'm loving that you're going off and talking about that parade, which otherwise wasn't mentioned, you know. But mm -hmm. uh, there's one more key figure that was in the show that, if you're going to talk about Chernobyl, is kind of unavoidable. Gorbachev. Yeah. Um, kind of talk to us about who he is because a lot of he's like this old, he's like this leader from before two thousand that people maybe don't know and remember now. I mean, you Gorbachev know? was the the last um premier of the Soviet Union, the KGB. No, no, uh, head of the Communist Party. Right. Uh, so the KGB is the um sort of um the the sort of cabinet of interior safety uh, you might translate it as uh, basically they're just the secret police um, right. who monitor people uh, arrest people so in a way they're still very much around I mean the the Russian FSB is sort of like the the continuum and of course mm -hmm. many people know that Putin was a member of the KGB but the KGB were not the head of the Soviet government. Mm -hmm. Um, they were just a department under it. And mm -hmm. Gorbachev was not a KGB member. 
um, he was a party member mm-hmm. and he had risen through the ranks to eventually be the head of the Soviet Union. Um, but he was uh, an interesting guy. In a lot of ways, he wanted to uh, try and soften sort of the hardline way that the Soviet Union had done things before. So interesting. A lot of people might have heard the, the words glasnost and perestroika. Uh, which were key policies of his. So Glasnost basically lifted a lot of the uh, free speech um, uh, barriers in the Soviet Union and allowed people to more openly criticize uh, the communist government. Mm -hmm. And uh, Perestroika was sort of like this idea of rebuilding uh, and working together to sort of remodernize the the Soviet economy, which was really struggling at that point. Mm-hmm. And some of those things were because of Chernobyl. And Gorbachev himself has said that Chernobyl was one of the main causes, ultimately, of the fall of the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Um, Gorbachev is often very much like liked in the West because he is seen as you know, finally a reasonable Soviet leader. That's you know, what I'm gathering about freedom and things like that. But actually in Russia, he's not so, he's not so popular because right. he's often seen as the guy who slipped up and allowed the Soviet union to fall apart uh, and collapse on his watch, um, which is also true. He, he, his policies opened things up, mm-hmm. uh, but they were also at least partly part of what led to all the countries of the Eastern Bloc breaking away the Berlin Wall coming down and then the dissolution of the Soviet Union as a whole. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and there was even a, there was a coup against him where hardline uh, communists sort of tried to take over. Uh, and in that chaos, eventually, right, the Soviet Union ended. Um, he's he is still around. He was the leader of the the, uh, the Communist Party in Russia for a long time. Um, when you say he's still around, he's still alive today. I have to double check on that. I yeah. think he might be. But I mean, he he definitely like didn't just disappear to the fall of the Soviet Union. Um, it's wild to think because it was uh, there was a very poignant line in the show where he was saying, uh, "Was it Sherbina that was saying that this is a nation that is, I'm and I'm paraphrasing here, striving very hard not to be embarrassed. That is very determined not to be embarrassed. You know, and that the whole mentality kind of plays into how we view Gorbachev even to today. You know, to some extent. I mean, definitely." The Soviet Union was extremely image conscious, mm-hmm. uh, which makes sense uh, given how much energy was put towards propaganda, uh, how important uh, the sort of ideological battle was mm-hmm. of communism versus capitalism for them um, uh, and and things like that. And it does get at, in a lot of ways, um, the experience of the fall of the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. Uh, In Ukraine, there's oftentimes a big divide between sort of older and younger generations, older generations who, um, you know, lived through Soviet times and younger ones who didn't. Amongst the older generations, there are certainly plenty of people who are very much uh, against the Soviet Union, especially more like nationalist Ukrainian mm-hmm. uh, people. Uh, and Chernobyl actually did a lot to make a lot of Ukrainians much less trusting of the Soviet Union and of sort of rule from Moscow. Mm-hmm. Um, because, I mean, Ukraine was not uh, was dependent at that time. It was not independent yet. Um but there are a lot of people in Ukraine and in Russia who missed the Soviet Union, who feel like it was really? a tragedy that it fell and that the, the experience of the Soviet Union collapsing wasn't one of liberation, 
but it was one of of humiliation of this one strong mm. superpower now dismantled and collapsed like we know for like putin has has said that he feels that way uh he's been very clear that he considers the fall of the soviet union to be one of the greatest geopolitical disasters of recent history and especially since after the soviet union fell in the 90s mm-hmm. that transition from communism or a soviet sort of socialist system to a capitalist economy was uh really rough um during the 90s you had um just like the standard of living of people just collapsing mm-hmm. um you had you know empty shelves in shops you had uh people who were in the right place at the right time the a lot of them were former party members um buying up um government controlled industries at Stocks really cheap other, prices right. or just taking over those industries right. and sort of setting themselves up as oligarchs mm-hmm. um you had a lot of problems with sort of mafia and government and you know the the very large overlap between the two at the time mm-hmm. so like someone like putin who came to power in 2000 is is seen by a lot of russians as sort of the guy who cleaned things up and actually restored some level of that old uh, honor and respect and strength in Russia and sort of brought prosperity back after the difficult years of the nineties, which can be taken many, many, many different ways. It's, um, yeah, that's yeah. And like I said, it's impossible to discuss Chernobyl without Gorbachev because Gorbachev was kind of that first kind of, um, I mean, aside from the convention that Legasov had to attend, it, it was more like, or whatever that event was, Gorbachev was like the face of Russia that was conveying mm-hmm. what was happening um, during this disaster. So, um, and a lot we can go off of there, but kind of winding back to the, the first, let's say the first two episodes, right? Okay, yeah. I think uh, it's good that we discussed and got at the mentality that these people had, what makes up KGB party members or what makes up the Soviet kind of old Soviet uh, way of thinking was the stages of denial and doubt mm-hmm. and misinformation that these people went through, you know, because you, you, I, I think I love, I think my favorite dichotomy or thing in the show is just watching um, Legasov and Trebina interact because mm-hmm. you think, man, you, the, the, when they appear on screen together, these people are not going to get along. These mm-hmm. people are not going to. And I'm pretty sure it wasn't kind of buddy-buddy like the show is portraying. But just the stages, various stages of denial. Did you see that as like accurate as far as people realizing what they were in for? Because a lot of the first responders, right, yeah. who were called the fire brigade or whatnot, a good chunk of them in reality probably knew what they were in for. No, they did no. not know. They had no idea what they were going into. Because I, and the reason I get I say that or infer that is because I, I have talked to several people before, but you try to look up information online and it's almost like, well, it's yes and no, you know. Mm-hmm. But in in by your estimation, they really had no idea the the full extent of what was going on. No, absolutely not. Uh, the first responders who went in for the initial fire, mm-hmm. I mean, they they had no special protective gear whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they went right in. They had no idea the mm. damage that they were they were receiving from radiation. For uh, context, uh, for our listeners, the the firefighters I think are kind of portrayed by a real life figure, uh, the Ignatenkos. Mm-hmm. So. 
Ludmila Ignatenko, who's the wife, and yeah. Vasily Ignatenko, who is the husband. Who, mm-hmm. yeah, one and one of the, it, it, it's the. I mean, the Ignatenkos are the mechanism that the show follows in order to portray these kind of first responders, right? Yeah, from, yeah. From when the explosion happens, you the first time you see the explosion, or yeah, the first time you see the explosion, it's from their point of view. Mm-hmm. It's from Ludmila. She's going to the bathroom, presumably yeah. because she's pregnant or whatnot. Mm-hmm. You see it off in the distance. He wakes up. Boom. Everything gets kickstarted in motion. Yeah. The music at that point is kind of like this invisible force. And I think it's one of the best aspects of the show, mm-hmm. you know, where the, the music acts almost like it almost replaces radiation mm-hmm. because radiation, there's, there's so much that we don't understand. Like it's the, I mean, it's invisible, right? It's an so. invisible force. And one of the ways that the show portrays that is a soundtrack, mm-hmm. just Hildor taking I like that, you know, if you looked up behind the scenes, she basically went to different power plants mm-hmm. and did like sound recordings of them. Hmm, and was able to melt that into these dissonant slash really intense, sharp, archaic sounds mm-hmm. that sound like just raw power seeping through the air. Yeah. You know, um, yeah, I like that the show, our first glimpse of the explosion was from a commoner, mm-hmm. you know, because everybody else was asleep. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. A lot of people thought it was like lightning mm-hmm. or thunder, some big boom. Right. So it happens and then people start gathering, you know, you can't go to sleep after a shockwave like that. Right? I mean, stuff like that. And where they're living is where like the living quarters of the fire brigade or whatnot, or a lot of people who worked mm-hmm. in the same power. I mean, Ludmila, she, I think she worked as a, she worked at the plant, right, as a as a canteen person or whatnot. Uh, I don't remember exactly what her job was, but in yeah. in the city of Pripyat, pretty much everybody who lived in that town, one way or another, was one way or another connected to the power right. plant. Yeah, and so like just the series of events starts kickstarting from there. It's like the sense of urgency of wait, what's going on, you know? And the nurse in the hospital was like, "Hey, do you stock iodine pills?" And the guy's like, "What the hell? Why would we stock iodine pills?" And mm-hmm. this that still on her face of. We might be in for something bad, mm-hmm. you know. But yeah, just going back to the stages of denial. I just, you know, did you get anything out of that? Like, was that a real thing? Or you know, mm-hmm. when I say denial, like Sherbina, the moment he realizes the severity of the issue is when, at least in the show, is when the gossip tells him, you know, I, I think they had just gotten done with like ordering a bunch of boron sand or whatnot, mm-hmm. or I could be wrong, but he. But Legasov basically lays the lays the haymaker on him and says, "You, we will probably be dead in five years." Mm-hmm. And at that point, you see him just like sit down and actually process it. So even party members at that level were were confused and were just misinformed on, on the severity of the of the events. Yeah, I mean, it was a combination of things. One was, yeah, there wasn't necessarily a lot of widespread education on radiation and and mm-hmm. what it could do. Uh, and also, I mean, the Soviet Union was slow to respond adequately mm-hmm. um, to protect its own image, right? It wanted to it wanted to preserve this idea that they were this, you know, technologically advanced socialist utopia that couldn't make mistakes like this. This simply couldn't happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, you know, with a state that relies so heavily on propaganda, um, even for the people who are the insiders. It can be very hard to uh, break through that. And for people who did know the severity, but also understood the pressure of maintaining that image and that propaganda, 
right? There's a lot of incentive to downplay mm-hmm. and and to uh, you know, and that was nothing new in the Soviet Union. That was a long, old, tried and true tradition. I don't think it's anything unique to the Soviet Union either. We often downplay, like, ah, this is going to date it again, but like the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. It started off as this long, off, distant thing that people were not concerned about. Yeah. And it grew, and it grew, and it grew. It kickstarted. Like, eventually, you know, at some point in our lives, if we make it that far... They're going to make a movie of this. They're going to make some mm-hmm. kind of interpretive media of what's going on. Yeah. And hopefully by then we'll be able to see like, hey, <laughs> exactly what's going on. Yeah. Although with with the case of Chernobyl, I mean, it does go further in, in, in into this just vast, vast web of state sanctioned dishonesty. Right. Uh, and, and I mean, there's examples of things like that going even further back. Like, for instance, uh, <laughs> one of the sort of classic stories comes from Stalin's time. Uh, you know, during the 30s at the height of Stalin's purges, where he was having his secret police uh, arresting and executing uh, or sending out to gulags uh, millions of people. Off of um, uh, yeah, well, a- as a way to reinforce his own power through fear and terror, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and at the same time, you had things like the Ukrainian Golodomor, the famine that oh, yeah. killed millions and all this stuff. But um, at one point, Stalin called in some uh, demographers to sort of count the Russian population. Uh, they came back. Uh, and this is kind of an apocryphal story. It's, I'm not 100% sure how true it is. But uh, basically, they came with numbers saying that Russia's population is decreasing over time. Um and Stalin didn't really like that, uh, so he had those demographers shot, and a new group brought in, and they told him that the population was growing, and he was much happier with that result. Uh, I like that you brought up Stalin and his era in the in the famine because there is one instance in the show um, that sort of represents the old the older among the population mm-hmm. that was, and you know what I'm you know what I'm hinting at. It's this uh, one scene with a soldier. Mm-hmm. An old woman in a farm. Yeah. And it's just this very, I think it's one of the sadder, I mean, the, this show, first of all, is very much R-rated, is very much for mature audiences, but you know, kids kids can, with their parents, can, I believe can and should maybe watch it at some point. Um, and there are a lot of disturbing moments in the mm-hmm. show, very understandably so, right? Because this yeah. is, is one of the bigger humanity crises events that have ever taken place. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Legasov says a line that says, you are dealing with a phenomenon that has never occurred on the planet before. Mm-hmm. And this is after Hiroshima. This is after World War II. Yeah. Just like, he mm-hmm. puts it into perspective. Like, I think the first time you get a sense of what's going on is in the, the first time the audience, for lack of a bit, you know, this audience that maybe doesn't know the full extent of what's going on, they hear that or 3.6. 3.16 millironcan or whatever the yeah. limit was mm-hmm. was not the equivalent of three chest x-rays it was more like 50 yeah yeah you know and like you hear you hear the gossip says wow that's that's still a lot you should still evacuate with that low number yeah and then when they actually get the decimeter when um that uh when that general Borov mm-hmm. or Borov who's I mean there's a story surrounding him too supposedly Borov takes takes it upon himself to take the newly arrived decimeter into the into the like outskirts of the power plant or whatnot mm-hmm. and the number comes back sixteen thousand. Holy crap. Mm-hmm. What are we in for now? You know? Yeah. Um yeah, but 
circling back to the older generation being really represented mm-hmm. is that one woman with the cow mm-hmm. she's milking the cows and she's kind of telling her story that you know what happened when stalin's boys tried to take us out no mm-hmm. what happened when the famine tried to take us out no mm-hmm. what happened when the war came around and our boys died and fought in the fields and i'm i'm milking the cows right now no Mm-hmm. It's just it, you have to imagine how hard it is for that generation to understand this is not as bad as what you've dealt with before. This is even this is not I don't want to say even worse, but this is a very, very different beast. Mm-hmm. You know, how many um, uh, how many stories have you heard like that? Because I'm pretty sure that was like a interpretive kind of way to symbolize. I mean, it's the challenges of evacuating people. So that that particular incident and her sort of bringing up all of the things that had happened in Ukraine, mm-hmm. um, I was actually really happy to see. And and so I was honestly surprised that they said the word Holodomor in like a Western, but like anything. Hmm. Um, Russia to this day denies that there ever was a Holodomor uh, or that that mm-hmm. there was ever a, a targeted attempt to to commit genocide against Ukrainians using mm-hmm. famine. But what that was was in 1932, 32 and 33, uh, basically um, the uh, Soviets who con- controlled that area at that point, um, they essentially started to requisition grain and require larger and larger quotas of grain in production. And, and when people were failing to meet those um uh, Stalin uh, started to suspect that they were hiding it and keeping it back. Uh, it's a little bit unclear what his motives were. Some people think his goal was to sort of gut the Ukrainian nation and mm-hmm. gut any possibility of like a nationalist Ukrainian movement. Others say that he thought that there they did have extra grain and they would just bring the grain they were hiding out. But yeah. regardless, uh, the result was that um, after a, a, a large like a bumper crop harvest all of that food was taken away and the people in the villages were left to starve and millions upon millions of them did died yeah, yeah. uh and, and and you know in ukraine today um there are old grandmothers like the one who was shown there who What's did the live through that for these it's called the, the, it, the ukrainians call it the holodomor okay sort of holodomor. the death by hunger right um and uh a lot of Ukrainians, like Ukraine has had a very hard history throughout the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, growing up, there was a woman who lived uh, right next to us. Her name was Lyubov Petrovna. Mm-hmm. Um, she had lost all of her siblings in World War II. Mm-hmm. Not a single one of them had made it out. And just to give you an idea of what, what had happened, right? So start at the start of the century, you had World War I. Um, and Ukraine at that point was divided between the Russian Empire and the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which was their neighbor. Right. So Ukrainians during World War One were forced to fight on both sides against each other. So they were killing each other. They were killing each other. Yeah. Um, the World War One leads to eventually the Russian Revolution. So the Tsar is overthrown, but that d- results in the Russian Civil War when the yeah. communists were facing or the Red Army was facing off with the White Army, which were all of the anti. Bolsheviks, whether they were czarist or, you know, liberal Democrats or whoever. Mm-hmm. But in Ukraine, um, that resulted in just years of this anarchic 
free-for-all war where you had the Red Army fighting the White Army, but you also had Ukrainian nationalists who were trying to declare independence Mm -hmm. between 1917 and like 1921 or 22, I want to say, different parts of Ukraine declared war or declared independence uh, five different times. Uh, You had uh, Poland invading at one point. You had um, peasant uprisings. You had basically total anarchy for a period of years. After that, you've got the 30s, where you have Stalin's famines. Right. And you have his great purges. Which the world basically, like, I think of, when you think Ukraine, I think a lot of people know way more about the famines than anything else than the Russian Revolution or anything like that. Just Maybe. I, it's in, so widespread. In my experience, not a lot of people know a lot about the famines that happened to Ukraine. That many millions of people affected and died. Yeah. It's just like, mm-hmm. it's an insane, it's an unprecedented amount of people. Yeah. But I mean, after I mean, after the famines, you know, the 30s, you get into the 40s, and that's mm-hmm. World War II, Ukraine was basically completely overrun by the Nazis uh, and the Russians, the Red Army fighting back, you know, fighting with their sort of scorched earth tactics as they felt fell back, um, you know, devastated the countryside. Um, The uh, Holocaust was perpetrated on Ukrainian lands. There are a lot of sites where Jews were massacred. Mm -hmm. Um, There there were there were cases of Ukrainian collaborators um, and a lot of uh, sort of issues related to that there was a a ukrainian nationalist movement that sided with the nazis Mm -hmm. uh, because they saw them as a chance to be free of the soviets and then eventually uh eventually they ended up fighting against the nazis because you know surprise the nazis were you know in a lot of ways just as bad if not worse Mm -hmm. um and then ultimately they were sort of stuck between fighting the nazis and fighting the soviets at the same time before they were crushed um so yeah, all and then finally you get to the 50s and 60s when things sort of slowly rebuild in the 70s and then in the 80s right Chernobyl, right? So there there were decades of just upheaval and violence uh and scars that are left to this day. Like you go to Ukraine today, you go to any village, I don't care how small it is, you know, you're you're there's a good chance that you'll find a monument, a World War II monument mm. to the people who fought and died right there mm-hmm. like in that spot just like the whole land is is peppered with monuments to things that happened in right. you know, world war ii and stuff like that so there had been and, and it was cool to see that history kind of summarized sort of representationally in that old the old babushka yeah, was, grandma in that scene i was just about um, to okay yeah so it's a babush well, babushka is just the Russian word for a grandmother. Oh, grandmother. Yeah. No, okay, yeah. I didn't know if it was a derogatory term because no, Craig no, Mason, not at all. Craig Mason and the interviewers sort of they 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 went over that a little bit. But um, I like see all that was sort of you felt that. Oh, mm-hmm. now most of your audience members are not going to know the extent, to, um, are not going to really know the extent of what you just said, you know. But in I, I feel like the show representational wise and visual wise mm-hmm. did a very they, it was a really interesting way to portray all that pain and all that just kind of and she was a tough nut mm-hmm. you know i mean russians have this there i don't know if it's a stereotype or not but it's like this tough rough exterior because of the events that happened mm-hmm. right but honest to god i thought the soldier was gonna shoot her mm-hmm. when you hear the shot because you don't see it yeah yeah you know but it's just it's so in a way, it's almost 
worse that he shoots the cow because mm-hmm. I think in that moment, at least for me, I might be reading a little much into it, but the cow sort of represented the life that had persisted. Mm-hmm. You know, this was a thing that provides agriculture for yeah. you, and you're mm-hmm. shooting it. You're shooting this woman's only purpose at this point mm-hmm. is to milk this cow and continue to provide labor mm-hmm. for the country. And then, 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 then this is what happens. Mm-hmm. I'm stripped of even this. Yeah. And it's just the, the fadeaway shot the, of her just in the doorway, just like with her keeled over. It was mm-hmm. just so profoundly, profoundly sad. Yeah, absolutely. You know? And I mean, that's just that's reflective of, you know, the thousands of people who did lose their livelihoods and were forced to leave places that they'd been for generations because mm-hmm. of because of the radioactivity from yeah. Chernobyl. Again, you know, just to kind of give us some perspective of, you know, what has come before, you know, there's so many things, you know, because if you watch the show and we both watched it um, and we both I listened to every single podcast they released because mm-hmm. they released a podcast after every subsequent episode. Right? Yeah, so, yeah. you know, we're, we're kind of brushing through a lot of things here, mm-hmm. but there are two more. Um, you could even get into the divers and how, mm-hmm. you know, the, the kind of liberties that the show takes, the fact that the unawareness, the awareness that the radiation in the waters was there, mm-hmm. but they weren't the only ones down there. You know, there were people as... As far as the, hist- the research I've done, like there are people that had to go down there and take measurements of the water and mm-hmm. like just soldiers or not soldiers. Yeah. And they weren't divers. These were three plant workers. Yeah. Yeah. Know? These three mm-hmm. were I have the names right here. And I'm probably going to screw up the names. So Alexei Anenko would not. Yeah. So Alexei Anenko. It's important to read the uh, names. Is right? it uh, Vespalov? Bespalov, yeah, Valery, Valery, that's right, Valery Bespalov, yeah, and then yeah. is it Boris uh, Romanov? You've got, I think so. Uh, yeah, Baranov, Bar- mm-hmm. Baranov, for whatnot. It's mm-hmm. just, and again, Russian is the accent I cannot replicate mm-hmm. for the life of me. It's very hard for a lot of people to, re- you know, which is why I appreciate the fact that this show doesn't shy away from these names. Even it's even though they take liberties in the fact that they don't have a Russian accent, period. It's kind of like this Eurasian kind of British. I mean, actually, I thought that was more genuine than if they had some ridiculous that is Russian accent. I love that. And I love um, their explanation yeah. of it because the Russian accent as transcribed into English, it 90, 90% of the time it, 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 op- it lends itself to comedy. Yeah. And, well, and yeah. also, here's the thing. You know, these in real life, mm-hmm. these people were speaking their native language, right? They Russian, were, yeah. Maybe in some situations, Ukrainian or Belarusian, right? Yeah. Uh, it's not like they were speaking a foreign language in an accent, right? And I, I feel like to to have them all speaking English with a Russian accent would be just silly. Because these people weren't speaking a foreign language, they were speaking their own native language that like they you could and communicate I are effectively. Right now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, right? Yeah. So it doesn't like if you want if you're the sort of person who was like, oh, there's no Russian accents. Really, the only thing that could have been more genuine is if they were actually all speaking, speaking Russian, Russian, which um, they didn't want to do. I think because they knew the. I don't know if they did. You know, I'm just gonna say I think it was a good decision for them to do so because that leaves the actors to just act. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, English is, hey, it's already a hard enough language for some people. I mean, the actor for Sherbina, I think, did a terrific, terrific job. Mm-hmm. You got um, Smith, uh, who is Richard Smith's son. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the actor for Dumbledore in the first two Harry Potter movies. Are you good? 
Excuse me. Take a drink of water too. If you like, you've been speaking a lot lately, bro. Um, really, round of applause for Joseph here, just laying down the history, just um, pedal stools or whatnot. But yeah, that was one of the aspects of the show that, again, I was cautious about. Mm-hmm. You know, the trailers kind of suggested that you know these people are speaking English, and they made a point not for them to speak in an American accent. These were all yeah. have to be like British because it would have been. I mean, that that was you're talking about the eighties, right? That's like at the height of when the Russian sort of Russian versus America kind of mentality Cold mm-hmm. War right off the off the endings of the Cold War so to speak you uh, say you say Chernobyl I mean Chernobyl is still well like the explosion happened what like still during mm-hmm. the Cold War I mean closer to the end of the Cold War but of course the people at the time had no idea they were close to the end of the Cold War kind of yeah um, well kind of like the way America is with China right now. I, I'd say just the relationships, really tight-lipped, yeah. very tension-building kind of relation relationships, right? But two more aspects that I mm-hmm. want to get at. You know, we've um, we've talked about the beginnings. You know, yeah. uh, different. You know, the divers or the Ignatenkos, Just seeing the ramifications of that. Um, you can't talk about Chernobyl and not talk about the coal miners mm-hmm. and the people. That sort of had to get rid of the wildlife, which they, which the show sheds yeah, sheds yeah. light on, you know. Mm-hmm. So kind of get at that a little bit because in the follow up the uh, podcast, Craig hinted at they they sort of said that uh, these coal miners were really, really, actually, really powerful. Yeah, absolutely, uh, beings within uh, the society. Yeah, so coal or like miners, the shakhtar, the miner uh, in Soviet society had kind mm-hmm. of a special position. Um, as far as like sort of the proletarian workers, mm-hmm. they were seen as sort of like the toughest, elitist, like 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 even the Communist Party didn't mess with them. Mm-hmm. Kind of a group. Um, I mean, partly because of just how brutally dangerous and difficult and their job and was. painful their job was. Yeah, um, and also more important than that. Uh, was how vital their job was to right. the Soviet industrial complex, right? Without them, without the coal that they would dig up, right? None of the factories would run, right? So they mm. were they the coal miners were in more of a position of power. Uh, they had more leverage, right, over the rest of the system than you know your average That's worker. Wild. That's yeah. wild because in the show they looked. I mean, in, I've never seen any other example in like uh you know as when we're talking about interpretations of history i've never seen soldiers look outmatched in toughness mm-hmm. than this right here just these oh, coal yeah. miners these kind of clean-cut soldiers who are escorting you know the scene is them escorting this guy um who's who has the job of going to these coal miners and telling them hey you the government has mandated that you have to come help us and mm-hmm. it's just these people charred in black Yep, and they just look like the most terrifying bunch of people you've ever seen. And their mm-hmm. leader, um, whose name I'm blanking on now, um, it's just like, well, if we're gonna go in, you gotta at least tell me what we're in for. Yeah, because mm-hmm. these people, they're not, they're also not stupid. Yeah, absolutely you know? not. These people were, yeah, it, it was amazing because our preconceived notions are that you know these people who work these kind of jobs are not educated. Uh, no, was that the case for these coal miners? Were they also educated? Was was it, was everything prototypical or were certain areas like I mean well so for one thing uh the Soviet Union was actually quite a well educated society in a lot of ways sure. they had one of the highest literacy rates in the world uh still do uh, or the former soviet areas mm-hmm. um 
Uh, so they would have they would have had the benefits of like that that state sponsored education, of course. But I mean, these would be working class guys, right? Like they're it's not like they have an advanced Some of them probably or didn't finish school or anything um, like that. Potentially, uh, although by the eighties, probably a lot of them did. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they they got their basic high school diplomas. But I mean, these guys are are they are working in a highly technical uh, and very dangerous. Um, field so i mean their area of expertise their knowledge uh, would be very deep Mm -hmm. in terms of techniques for mining for avoiding cave-ins for you know proper ventilation all those sorts of things so i mean i don't think it would be necessarily right to say that they're uneducated no not at all Uh, which is why but and the show portrays that in a very Mm -hmm. uh accurate way because these workers are not only are they um yeah not only are they educated you know but they're also like I said, terrifying. Just like these really rough and tumble men who get who you look at and you say, "Yeah, that that's a guy that gets things done." Mm-hmm. And in the at the end of the day, they were called. You know, so for context, these people were called into. Uh, I'm blanking on the specifics of what they were called in for. So they were called in to carve out like a tunnel. They needed to dig out an area so that they could install a heat exchanger mm-hmm. to to stop the the core from melting down into the groundwater which basically means they they needed to dig down space to put a giant refrigerator under the right the building more or less because this was the result of the boron and the the lava that had occurred at that point, which is still there by the way right like the oh the core and like the uranium that like like yeah a lot of that material is still there that they never they could never they could never uh retrieve it that's why they covered it that's the best you could do you don't you can't approach that stuff you're dead yeah if you do, I mean, yeah, there's so many aspects we could say to that too. Is the fact that you know they they had this machine uh, that the Germans had sent in or whatnot. I mean, this was from West Germany too. Mm-hmm. Another example of how the country didn't want to be embarrassed. But um, yeah, just the layering. I, I think that the show had just um, you know the fact that they gave them the propaganda number mm-hmm. instead of what the actual number was. So yeah. what resulted was was a machine that after five seconds was fizzled out because yep. of the radiation you know mm-hmm. and so all that as a backdrop you have these coal miners going in mm-hmm. they're hot they're really hot you know working in these horrible yeah. horrible conditions and it's just like and even they are like saying you know this is this is really hot and so what do they do they strip naked actually as far as i as I the show represents that that didn't actually that didn't happen, happen. okay <laughs> I, I was about to ask like okay Joe, like so why did the show? Why do you think the show portrayed them that way? Yeah, it's HBO. They need to have some naked people. Oh, do you really think it was? So, <laughs> so is that where the sellout kind of begins? Is they had they had to have some kind of nudity? I mean, I don't so know. They, it's they I mean, it, male nudity. It is actually full frontal. By the way, you can see it. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, there is kind parents of maybe shield your eyes uh, there, but an interesting story there. Um, in that uh, they were largely safe from the radiation as long as they were underground. Right. Um, and they didn't, I mean, they spent a lot of time under there. But a lot of um, people still... But a lot of them got fatal doses of radiation, uh, not because of the work, but because they would take smoking breaks outside of the tunnel. Gotcha. And they, would, they, would, they would be irradiated when they were out there. Mm. So a lot of them... But you, I mean, these are coal miners. So of their own volition, that's like their break time, you know. It's like their, it's like their place of rest or whatnot. And um, and 
the whole reason they were there was based off of a 60, what, 60% calculation that it would melt through? I mean, they, they didn't know for certain whether or not it would, but I mean, 50-50, you know. That's a chance. Is this going to ruin the groundwater of the entire country, 50-50? Like, that's a tough... That's a tough bet to make, right? And as it turns out, it still hasn't. No, it didn't. Right? It didn't. It didn't. Mm-hmm. It didn't. Yeah. Man, and to give lives away, it's just a theme. And that's another theme of the show is sacrifice. Mm-hmm. You know, just uh, um, when they were pitching these, going back to the divers, they were, you know, Sherbina gave this kind of, the reasoning Sherbina gave, you know, you'll do it because your country needs you. You'll do it because it must be done. Mm-hmm. Was that very in line with what the... Soviet mentality was, you know, the workers' union, oh, yeah. the labor party. I mean, so we're dealing with a culture that's very collective mm-hmm. uh, in a lot of ways. And also, I mean, a, a culture that is, um, I mean, for lack of a better way to put it, um, kind of used to suffering and capable of suffering. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, you look, for instance, at World War II, I'm going back to this, but like no. uh, the Soviets suffered more casualties by far than anyone else in that war. Um, and and so much of the, the way that mm-hmm. soldiers were encouraged to fight was, yes, you're going to die, you know, make it count. So, so this idea of um, sacrifice uh, was, I mean, very much part of it. And there is a, a very dark side to that. And that is that oftentimes the Soviet, I mean, well, often very much so the Soviet government was extremely callous towards the lives of its people. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, you know, look, throwing people into to their deaths at war is one thing, but we also have, you know the gulags right and and the arrests and the executions that went along with that um so i mean from a propaganda area right there's a lot of you know sort of this martyrdom rhetoric and you know sacrifice for your country and you know you know give up your life so the rest of us Uh, but that while there's all this propaganda that pushes that forward the upper echelons of the soviet party were always far more willing to send Russians and and Ukrainians and and others to their deaths rather than sacrifice themselves. Yeah, it's just a yeah. But these people, for lack of a better term, they went. They did. You know, they did, and they a lot of them got the job done. Well, the last sort of aspect as we maybe start to wrap things up here is the events of the last episode. Them just kind of getting at the hints, getting at the root Mm -hmm. sort of as much as they can of the problem so Mm -hmm. we know now that um a lot of it had to do with the flawed designs of the rbk rbmk reactor itself Mm -hmm. you know just the fact that a lot of documentation was withheld Mm -hmm. and um yeah what did you think of the representation of, of how that convention went down I mean, it definitely is. The trials went down. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely one of the most fictionalized parts of it. That's what um, I'm gathering. Yeah. Uh, which, I mean, makes sense because it, it would be hard. You've got to, to explain to your audience how it happened somehow. Yeah, right. right? And and it's, I have to give it to them. It would be very hard to essentially give, you know, it's what's basically a lecture mm-hmm. on, you know, what happened. Now, you know, for me as a history teacher and a history buff, I would like, I would be all around for, you know, sitting down for a lecture on Chernobyl, but general audiences might be a little bit harder to convince there. Um, so they use that courtroom setting essentially uh, to lay out uh, the details of how exactly the... Kind of like exposition yeah. reveal or not. But in a creative way, because mm-hmm. at that point, 
when if you watch up to episode five, you've gotten all of the kind of physical aspects of what has yeah. the tangible kind of visual physical things that mm-hmm. have happened to these people up until that point. It gets it in context because yeah. a lot of what have I, I I can only imagine if this was in other showrunners' hands. Not to say the show was perfect, it it, it did have its flaws, but. A lot of other people would put that at the beginning and Maybe, sort of yeah. have like a time lapse jump, jump, yeah. jump, jump. Mm-hmm. Whereas this, if you're just talking about history, it's better just to give us to layer it like that. You mm-hmm. know what you're saying? Yeah. First and also, I, I think one of the interesting ways that they made it interesting, too, is they built mm-hmm. up the, you know, how did it explode right. as sort of like the big mystery, question. right? The central right. question that they had been asking for so long. And mm-hmm. so... When they present, you know, their their information as the big reveal Mm -hmm. that is far more engaging for an audience. Right. Because as a storyteller, I mean, I'm this is why, again, this is why I wanted to have you on just because you can kind of see between the filmmaking. But for me, the filmmaking is the first thing I see Mm -hmm. and the first and just kind of the layering effect of, okay, um, how do you tell a story like this with so many moving components? Mm -hmm. So by that fifth episode, the reason I think that court... Although they take liberties, mm-hmm. um, the reason it's effective is because emotionally people are already kind of sort of hooked and not hooked. I hate to say that because it is a real event, mm-hmm. but emotionally you get what's going on. Yeah, you're you know, sort of you've seen the faces invested. of you've you've heard the screams of Vasily as he's dealing with the spores or whatnot growing off of his face. You've seen uh, Toptonov, mm-hmm. the young twenty-five-year-old who was a graduate. He was a really I mean, can you imagine it being 25 and working as a what at that point in time, he was appointed like a really, really high position yeah. at the power plant. It's just it's mm-hmm. unthinkable. Um, yeah. Akimov would not who, according to some according to the records on hand, his face was so charred off mm-hmm. that they didn't even want to put him in the make him chair for it. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. you saw Vasily Ignatenko's face just really unrecognizable. The mm-hmm. makeup department now. I think they also took liberties there as well, right? Because I, I, you know, I looked up several mm-hmm. interviews of nurses who had worked during that time, and the face faces weren't nearly that deformed. Mm-hmm. But still, you, I, I feel like the show did well in illustrating at which point. So even like, there's a shot of the dogs and cats and all the domestic animals in a truck just going into yeah. this landfill. Mm-hmm. And if you're a pet owner, I gather that might be the most painful part of the show is the, either the guy shooting these puppies or mm-hmm. um definitely it's very grim very uh, watching and the in the name of the episode they base it off of this poster i mm-hmm. i wanted to get at this a little bit it says for the goodness of all mankind yeah all right so my our goal or purpose is the happiness of all mankind. the happiness of right. all mankind was that a real thing was oh that, yeah for sure it yeah. was that a real uh what was that do you know what that was a part of what that I was mean, that would be that would be that was be sort of like a fairly typical sort of like slogan. propaganda slogan or mm-hmm. banner you 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 had i mean sort of in everyday life in the soviet mm-hmm. union at workplaces and schools, you know, you just have a lot of sort of like the very sort of like upbeat, like, yeah, mm-hmm. we're all in this together and this is awesome mm-hmm. kind of um, images and slogans out there for that sort of like to encourage. Pretty much like capitalist team. America. You you have some you have companies that come out with their slogans and mm-hmm. I, I it's just, yeah, using that as a backdrop, which is why, you know, where we are in episode five. Which is why we feel the way we feel when we see the trials happen, mm-hmm. you know. 
Um, it's just part of the norm for storytelling. I think with historic storytelling, you have to be very specific. And I find mm-hmm. I find that they did the best that they could. I like, think in um, a lot of ways they did. Yeah, yeah. it's like they mm-hmm. to give us because we know what happened. You know, we, you have the ability to read and yeah. look it up. But what these people have to deliver, um, which I think they did, was the um, just the again, I, I, I've used this word a lot today, but like mentality. Mm-hmm. the mindset of what these yeah. people were going through the experience you know? of it and also i think it, it definitely they bring this story to uh you know people who maybe wouldn't read mm-hmm. about it right yeah. or or don't know about it and i think i mean from my experience there's this to me at least a surprising number of people here in america who mm-hmm. like had no idea at all what chernobyl was or that it had even happened mm-hmm. uh so this is kind of bringing this story to them for the first time yeah and kind of nearing in the spotlight on um, Legasov or whatnot. I, the reason, I, at least to me, as a, you know, I'm not as knowledgeable in history as mm-hmm. maybe others are, but uh, Legasov and just doing the research on him, it's like this guy, there's this line in the scene where they say, oh, you got all that information off of a description of a rock, you know. He's representative of a lot of scientists that probably knew what they were hearing as soon as they read the report. Mm-hmm. You know? And um, to that, do you think uh, do you think that was accurate as far as the portrayal of that? Like just scientists being um, able to the scientific community identifying and moving in on an otherwise very hard to penetrate system. I mean, they they did. Uh, I, I'm not I don't know as much about the science side of it, to be honest. But mm-hmm. I mean, you did you did eventually see. Um, sort of the the Soviet system pushing into high gear to actually deal with mm-hmm. a really huge problem. It took a long time. It took longer than it should have, uh, but they did eventually get there, mm-hmm. and that was largely or partly at least right through the the pushing and the insistence of uh, a lot of the scientists who were sort of um, you know taking the measurements and and coming to the conclusions that this was really a serious problem. We we t- we talked earlier about how the show kind of took home made home yuk the um the like the representation of all these scientists but i did like this one instance where uh and how that was flawed but i did like this one instance where she was calling um someone at a different office or whatnot mm-hmm. i think it was in russia or moscow or yeah whatnot. yeah and they were using cryptic language to talk mm-hmm. about um how they were using boron and sand like oh i was the, the forest is usually so hot. A yeah. little Boris, who's six, and some, you know, the atomic numbers and the elements. Mm-hmm. Was that true? Was that how they communicated? And- um, I don't know about that, but it would have been a safe assumption on mm-hmm. both of their cases that their phones were bugged and that the KGB was listening. Mm-hmm. That's, um, a, that's a prevalent theme throughout the show. Yeah. You know, like, you see, um, you see these long off shots of the kind of you can kind of tell what the intentions are you know whether the camera's still or or a little bobbing side to side Mm -hmm. and there are lots of shots where uh i noticed i don't know if you did but like shots of legasso from a distance where Mm -hmm. it looks like someone's looking at him Hmm. or like overhead shots when he's in the hotel yeah and he's you know walking to the bar you see someone you see the camera kind of follow him from above Mm -hmm. or sometimes you see shots of trebina or legasso with phones in the background, just to kind of hint at, you know, people, this is still the KGB we're talking about. Yeah, you know? yeah. Yeah, and I thought one of the more interesting parts of the show was when Legasov was at the bar, you know, he, hey, mm-hmm. I'd rather have this glass that's like tipped down. Superstitious? Mm-hmm. 
you know, the two that supposed spies mm-hmm. that were sent to follow him around. And then he says, uh, and then they ask, hey, do we have anything to worry about? And he says, no. Mm-hmm. He chooses to lie. Yeah. I, I gather a lot of scientists are put in that, like, really hard situation, right? A lot of scientists mm-hmm. were put in that hard scenario. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, a lot of, I mean, even as they were cooperating, there was a lot of pressure to mm-hmm. only reveal the information that was state-sanctioned. Right. Uh, and, and I mean, there could be consequences. And to not cause panic. And- yeah, and, and ultimately, you know, when Lagasev did push past that and say more, there were consequences for him. Uh, I mean, it, one of the inaccuracies of the show is that, like, he had this big moment in court when he, like, let it all out. Uh, what really happened was sort of in, in the months afterwards, he, he wrote snippets. and published more... Uh, and you know spoke at different gatherings and yeah i mean uh, he ended up essentially still being you know disgraced and sort of pushed out Uh, eventually you know he did you know record uh his his account and tape then he did commit suicide um but rather than it being sort of like one big defiant moment it was months of work of him trying to bring people Mm -hmm. uh awareness about the issues behind chernobyl Mm -hmm. and eventually getting shut down i don't think that takes away from his actions at all though just or his his or a scientist like him yeah oh i don't think so either helped to solve and absolve the problem yeah you know i think it's it's more just a, a difference uh they they decided to portray that yeah sort of to to get it out there probably in a more clear way yeah like right there in the courtroom so to kind of wrap things up like what what can be gathered from watching stuff like this because it's at a time especially at a time like this uh at the time of recording this we are still going through the coronavirus Mm -hmm. we're going through some political upheaval as we speak Mm -hmm. you know what are what can be gleaned from taking part in history because it's always you know, we always we always say that you should study your history to not repeat mm-hmm. so that history doesn't repeat itself. But to to people out there who are contemplating this show or contemplating things like this show, what do you suggest? What do you suggest as people trying to study history is what I'm asking. Well, I mean, we often say, you know, study history or else, you know, you're doomed to repeat it. Mm-hmm. Uh, although although sometimes I'm tempted to to say instead uh, study history, it'll repeat itself, and then you'll Regardless. be taken along for the ride anyways. Yeah. Um, but uh, there definitely are some interesting sort of uh, things that are relevant um, to today. I mean, obviously, for one, uh, Chernobyl is another example of a disaster that was you know, primarily scientific and then compounded by the social elements surrounding it. Right. Uh, it was a situation where you had scientific experts uh, struggling to to gain the cooperation of civic leaders, um, a situation where the truth of the situation was uh, contested, um, and where um, uh, the uh, sort of political leaders involved had incentive or cause to mm-hmm. minimize or distort the actual nature of the disaster, and the fact that those decisions they made led directly to deaths. Um, I think there's a lot of parallels to be made towards, uh, you know, the coronavirus today, uh, primarily scientific problem that has led to a lot of the same issues of, uh, you know, experts uh, and and experts struggling to have the trust of the public and of uh, people in power and of just so many different narratives around what is actually happening and the severity of it. And the fact mm-hmm. that, like, there are, I mean, people dying in real consequences. Right. Yeah, it's yeah, and again, it's the key reason I wanted to talk about it. Even after 
you know, 30 years after the events happened, or at this point, we're coming up on 40 years, mm-hmm. which is crazy to think about. Um, just like as a back said, it is a rather difficult watch, I'd mm-hmm. say, for especially right now, because people are experiencing similar crises, right? We're not, we're taken out of our comfort zone, we're taken out of a certain, not to be all philosophical or not, but it's the reality of human nature, you know? It's like, I, I the, the phrase that, keep circulating around is when are we going to get back to normal well my thing to that is was it ever normal to begin with you know was it ever like Mm -hmm. the things we took for granted that it was that normal you know all all that um but yeah that's chernobyl Uh, i'd I'd really i think the both of us i speak for me i'd recommend it yeah absolutely Uh, you know i would definitely agree with that um age limit I'd, i'd maybe cut it off at about 14 or 15 i don't feel anybody below that should maybe and certainly it's it's pretty pretty harrowing yeah a lot of tension if you Um, do decide to watch it with uh kids or whatnot or younger audience you may have to have like a sit down and talk down like hey mm -hmm. this is what's going on but it would be it would be fairly responsible i think to show history as portrayed because even a a lot of adults still don't know that it happened Mm -hmm. you know absolutely yeah joseph you just did an hour and 30 Oh really? You are a natural man. <laughs> you're you're complete. You you a year ago you were like ah I don't know how I'd be and look at you man you you you're complete natural at this. You should consider doing it more. That was um, fun. Joseph, any final thoughts uh, before we wrap up? Is there anything you'd like to t- um say uh, to the public or is like. I don't, I don't usually know how to wrap these up because it's usually sports takes. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is usually where I say, hey, man, so what do you think is going to happen next? But, mm-hmm. you know, as as we're going through what we're going through right now, do you have any kind of final wrapping words? Um, I guess uh, uh, to conclude, it's it's worthwhile to take the time to understand mm-hmm. the stories and history that come from other places uh, to see the parallels uh, and the differences between other times and other places and your own. Uh, and if a, a miniseries can be uh, an effective tool to assist you in that endeavor, um, then by all means, uh, use it. I would say for sure, if, if, if your intention is to seriously learn more about mm-hmm. Chernobyl using the miniseries, um, you could def- uh, definitely watch it, listen to the podcast where the creators, and one thing I really appreciate is we're very open about what they changed, what they didn't, Correct. and what their research was. Mm-hmm. Um, look into some books. Uh, there's a good one called Voices of Chernobyl, which is a collection of oral history. Right. Um, absolutely, though. It can, uh, it can be a great entry point to mm-hmm. a deeper understanding of this critical period of history. Yeah. Well... Guys, that's been uh, Crunchy Take, a very, very special episode of Crunchy Take. Um, uh, Yeah, and that's it, Joseph. Thanks for coming on, my man. Hey, it was great. Thank you so much for having me. All right, folks. That's a wrap on the Crunchy Take for today. See you guys. Das Vidaniam.